government for close to 30 years. I'm not giving anything away she, since she's 10 <laughs> or 5. <laughs> she's known for teaching subjects such as Parsha, Tefillah, Nabi, history on an intellectually advanced level, but gearing her shiurim towards students with all levels of education. With a strong text-based and philosophical emphasis, she strives to expose students to fundamental Jewish ideas and their eternal truths, drawing on great masters spanning from the Midrash, Rambam, and, Ram, and Ramban to more modern thinkers such as the Maharal, Ramchal, Rav Hirsch, her grandfather, Rav Shimon Schwab, and Rav Moshe <laughs> Shapiro. She excites and inspires her audience with the ingenuity and profundity that is hiding just beneath the surface of the text. Esther teaches regular classes in Manhattan, Queens, Brooklyn, and Long Island. Video and audio of her classes can be found on TorahAnytime.com and OU Radio. She lives in Lawrence with her husband, Herschel, a senior tax attorney at KPMG, and her children. Thank you. Thank you for speaking. So, first of all, no more OU, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not my sure not. I haven't posted them there for a long time, but now I do have a Facebook page recently, so... Um, that's for some of the Shiramar, and what we're speaking about today, there are a number of Shiram on that Facebook page that developed this idea further. This whole symposium today is devoted to building strong families. And we all know, from experience, from our own community, that this is not an easy thing to achieve. We have lots of challenges. We have relationships that are breaking apart faster, sometimes so fast, that, you know, than, 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 we can, than we'd like to, uh, to believe. We have relationships between husbands and wives that are breaking apart, children and their parents that are breaking apart, alienation from the main relationship we're supposed to have in our life, which is God, <coughs> which, which helps us put in order all other relationships. We have a serious problem with people that have a sense of despair and hopelessness and lack of interest in living. Everybody probably is aware of the growing, alarmingly, uh, you know, expanding rate of suicide, accidental death to people in their 20s and young, you know, 20s and early 30s. And we have addictions of all sorts plaguing our community. We have disenfranchised kids who are just alienated, apathetic from society, the system, God, of course. Keeping relationships together, it's a big, you know, this is the challenge. And the question is, is it, why is it so complicated? Is there some type of model that's not, that doesn't require a PhD, that doesn't require years of psychiatry, you know, psychological lectures and training, that's clear and straightforward and makes sense and helps people put their relationships in order? And the answer is yes, there's a model, and it's not that complicated. And, it, the, and in terms of succeeding at living according to this model, the playing field is level. You don't have to be the greatest scholar, <coughs> and you don't have to know Kolator Kulo, and you don't even have to know every Ramban and Rambam. You just have to know how to read the Torah and listen to what it's saying. My grandfather, Shimon Schwab, used to say that when we start learning Torah, and we start analyzing every single perush or muforush, and we compare and contrast them. It's like going on an ocean cruise, and instead of looking around at the scenery, you're stopping every five feet and testing the water, you're doing a whole chemical analysis of the water. Torah's mikra, you have to also just read it. So we're going to start out with 
rereading, and we don't even need Chumashim because what we're going to reread is so, so common and so familiar to all of us. We're going to reread the basic story in the beginning of the Torah, and you could go back and read it in, in detail. But this is the flow, and the ideas that I'm going to share with you today originally were presented, you know, I, 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 I found them, and I uh, am internally grateful that I found this presentation in Chakira Journal 2007 by Menachem Krakowski, the head of psychiatry at Orangeburg Hospital. Turns out to be a second cousin of my husband. They share the same great-grandfather. Um, and he presented an article that is online on the Facebook page. There's a link to it. You can read the whole article. But to reduce it to its essential idea is to read the Torah for what it's saying. We, humanity... Right? There were no Jews yet in the early days in Gan Eden. Humanity had a capacity to live in a way that was correct, that was right, that was perfect, that was pleasurable. It was called the Garden of Eden. There was an ideal way of living. But there was one choice that we had to make, and that was which tree to eat from. There was a tree of life. We'll explain what it feels like to be fully alive and glad to be alive and invested in your life and thrilled with life. But we made a mistake. We all make this mistake. This is the human condition. We choose to find the tree of good and bad very appealing, maybe more appealing than the tree of life. The tree of good and bad is growing in the garden. Where is this garden? We have some clues. In this garden is a tachayim, right? What do we say when we make a bracha on the Torah? What do we call the Torah? And we say, You planted that tree of life in us. The garden's in here. The garden is the human psyche. And in the human psyche, there are two options, two trees, okay? Two ways we sustain ourselves. One is the tree of life, which is going to be the Torah. But we don't opt for that first. The second is what we opt for. We eat from the tree of good and bad. Good and bad is not truth or falsity. Two plus two is four. If I ask you what's the biggest lie, what's the bigger lie? Two plus two is a thousand, or two plus two is four point zero 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 one. They're both equal lies. There's no range in truth and falsity. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or female or LGBT, it's all that's irrelevant. It's just four for everybody. But true, but that's truth and falsity. But good and bad is subjective. We don't even have to explain that. Everybody understands that good and bad is subjective. So we're in a world, and we choose to eat from the tree of good and bad, which means we allow ourselves. And Rambam says in chapter 2 of section 1 in the Mora, right in the beginning, the sin is not the eating. Rambam says they chose to believe, to accept that eating from the tree, in other words, allowing themselves to become entirely subjective, that that would be freeing, that that would be empowering, that that would be pleasurable, and therefore they ate. The big shift in the paradigm for human beings that begins the downward spiral and the source of all our problems is that we conclude that it feels good to operate according to how we see things, our point of view, based on a lot of factors, our education, our personality, our coping mechanisms, our drives, our talents, we're a composite. 
of God-given abilities. And we decide that all of these abilities as we, as that we discover in ourselves, right? we decide that we're going to put them to use for our own agenda. In a sense, that's called eating from the tree. We become entirely subjective. We choose to see the world from our perspective, from what makes sense to us, and we create a story. We create a narrative. We create a sense of a structure for ourselves. That's how we all live in different worlds. As soon as we allow ourselves <coughs> to close the door and pull down the blinds, on any truth beyond ourselves, from the outside, any God-given reality, any directions in, upon us in order to allow us to live in a world that takes into account a greater truth than our own, as soon as we shut the door to that, we are alone. We're alienated from God. And the next story in the Torah is a story about a man named Cain. The Zohar says, Cain's the product of the woman and the snake. It's not literal. The alliance between the snake, which is representing our own need for gratification, the base of the brain is called the reptilian brain inside. It controls our autonomic nervous system. Our urges, all our physical urges that need to be gratified. And the isha, so we only have a half hour, it represents our passions and our desires and our initiative and our creativity, God-given creativity. Creative ability, that's from God, God's a creator. And we link them together and we, we now start devoting all our talents, our ingenuity, our brains, our, our, all, everything we have to finding ways to gratify ourselves and respond to the urges of our body, of our ego, and we lock ourselves in a room and we turn all this human energy on ourselves and we elevate food and clothing and pleasure and art to an art, I mean, to an art form. And it's all about us establishing ourselves in a world and feeling permanent and important and substantial in a world where we are alienated from the only thing that makes us permanent, substantial, and real. The Rambam says, we'll get back to Kain in a second, in his describing what Ein Od Novado, Ramam says it doesn't mean, like the Tanya goes in the other direction, that nothing exists but God. We do exist as separate entities. But because our existence is contingent on God, it's not a true existence. Hashem himself is the only one whose existence is not contingent on anything else. And therefore, ain't owed milvado, there's nothing other than God in this way that only God truly exists independently of everything. To the degree we close ourselves out, off from the other, the great other, the truth beyond ourselves, we are alone in a world where we don't actually have permanence. We don't actually, we are not connected to anything real and permanent. And all the fears kick in. The primary fear shows up in the next story. There's somebody called Cain. That's the offspring of alienation from God. That's the offspring of disconnection from the great other. The truth is beyond themselves. Cain had a brother, but to Cain, his brother was hevel, totally devalued. Because in a world where we only see ourselves and we're entirely subjective, and it's all about self-promotion and self-establishment, everyone else around us is either an instrument that we can use we instrumentalize our relationships. We make profit-loss calculations, even with our children, with our spouses, 
people we work with, with our community members, all relationships are reduced to instrumentalized relationships. And if somebody does not agree to either cooperate with me and be an instrument in my establishment of my story, and they're not a good extension of me, they refuse to be an extension. They oppose me. They contradict me. They tell me that the story you've created about and the permanence you've established for yourself and your value system, it's all a lie. It's a fantasy. It's a joke. I don't believe any of it. You're wasting your time. If they don't agree to be a good extension, if they're not an instrument I can use, then immediately they become a threat. And they have to be eliminated. If they're my children, I could fall into a trap. They're not a good extension of me and my story and my picture. They have to be managed. They have to be punished and threatened, criticized and rejected, made to feel guilty, not allowed to be who they are because they're an extension of me. I can't see beyond myself. When Hashem said to Kayim, where is your brother? And he said, I don't really know. Right? That was the truth. To a person who lives in an egocentric world in which they've closed themselves out to a truth beyond themselves, they have no idea where the other is. They cannot see the other. They do not hear the other. The, they see them with eyes, and they operate toward the other in a profit-loss relationship. Like Kayan, I know there's a God. <clears throat> I know somebody controls the rain and all that, and I'm a farmer. So I will make a calculation of the minimum that I have to do in order to get what I need. It's all profit loss calculation. There's no love in that. There's no relationship. And the person in that room, all by themselves, that has sealed themselves away by refusing to consider a greater truth than themselves, because it might make demands on them, and it might help make them control certain urges, and limit themselves in certain ways. But I'll talk about that in a second. It's not really limiting. That person is in a room, and not only are they in a room, slowly they begin to line all the walls of that room with mirrors. And all they see is themselves in a million different directions. And the ultimate expression of this is narcissism, which is a personality disorder of total subjectivity, where everyone else is zero in heaven. Nothing. Totally devalued. And everything's okay, because nobody else matters. But in that room, all fears and every afflictive state of mind grows. That is not the Garden of Eden. That is a field of horrors. All fears, fears of being alone. You are alone. And when you're alone, your fear of abandonment, fear of death, fear of humiliation, you distrust everybody, you're jealous, you're angry, you're depressed. It all comes from being locked away. There's a solution to this problem. And the solution to the problem is walking out of the room and seeing the world from a different paradigm, the way you're supposed to see it. But it takes a process. All of humanity is on a journey. We're on a personal journey. Here's the simple, simple model of the proper formula, the proper arrangement. We all know these. We're just going to put two or three factors together. Everyone makes there's a God. If there's no God, my life is worthless. Nobody created me, nobody's watching me, nobody cares what I'm doing. End of story. There's only two ways about it. Every value I invent for myself or any way I, to anything I devote myself to, it's just my own invention. 
So there's a God. God is the creator. Think about father, mother, and offspring in a human birth. Okay, a human pregnancy and, and uh, childbirth. There's God the creator. Two things. God created the entire universe, everything in it. And Hashem said to us right in the beginning, Mikol Eitzagan Achol Tochal, eat from everything. And in addition to an entire universe that he said, put your mark on everything, explore everything, God created the human being. The second chapter in the Nefesh HaChayim says that when we are called Selim Elohim, that is not some amorphous general term. It's very specific, and it's a scientific definition. The only name of God employed in chapter 1 in Genesis and Bereshus is Elohim. The only thing that Hashem is doing in chapter 1 in Bereshus is creating. When we are called Elohim, we are creators. We have been given God's creative power. So God created a whole world, and he gave us his creative ability, which we all feel. You know how we know we feel it, and you don't have to teach it to anyone? You could be the best parent in the world. You could do everything right for 30 years, not one misstep. But you say the following sentence, and you, everything fails. You say, you know what, sweetie, to your child? You have nothing to offer to this world. You have nothing, you don't need a creator. There's nothing here that, you need, that we need from you. In other words, you're not a creator. Just say that, you're done. All 30 years out the window, nobody buys it, nobody can accept it because it's fundamentally a lie. We are selling Elohim, we're creators. So just like the Father, Hashem creates a whole world and invests us with creative energy. Humanity is the receiver. That's the biggest challenge of all. We are the receiver, to know we're the receiver, and to know what to do with what we've received. Humanity is the receiver, the woman, the macabre. We receive all God give, God's given abilities and a whole world to operate on. And what are we supposed to make out of it? Where are we supposed to put all this talent? There's so many options. What do we do with all our ingenuity, our, in, in, our, our helpful, subjective, individual point of view, our own in creativity, our own energies, our own way of thinking? What's this to do with it all? There's so many options. You can do whatever you want with it, as long as, and here's where the Torah comes in, here's what the Torah guides us, as long as every single thing that a human being engages in Everything we put our mark on, whether it be a relationship, an idea, an invention, anything, a song, anything, a product, uh, just an experience, anything we interact with, when we get through with it, that byproduct, that final product is the child. And you know what the child is? Clearly the joint effort of the mother and the father. This world is supposed to express itself and be seen as in every aspect of what humanity touches is supposed to be recognized as the joint effort of God and man. We say this in davening. God is the creator of, of um, remedies. God makes uh, medications. Healing. What's, what's a... Refuot. Um, what's a good English word? Cures. Beautiful. But we do. That's correct. The joint effort of God and man. The Torah teaches us how to face every area in life and even gives us instructions about areas we don't understand yet. They're hukim. This is how you operate, so that when you interact in the world, you, whatever you touch, will clearly be the joint effort of God and man. That's the book product. That's the child. That's what we're doing here. So when I know that I am a partner with God, and I need to, and this world, the goal is, look at all the Nabiim, the whole world, all humanity will know 
that there's a God through the human, through human effort. God's fate is in our hands to be known in his own world, but not without us taking the resources and our creativity and our knowledge of why we've been given it, God won't be known in his world. What happens? Where does the dysfunction set in? When do we go into that sealed room? When do we eat from the tree? We disconnect ourselves from our source. So we have all this creative energy. We have all this talent. We have a whole world to operate upon, right, to do things with. But we don't want to admit that this talent and this ability and this life force was given to us for a purpose that's beyond ourselves. That's where we cut it off. We accept it. We enjoy it. We maximize it. But we don't say it was given to us from something, be, from Hashem beyond us for a, re, for a goal which is also beyond ourselves. That's where the disconnect comes in. That's why receiving the Torah is so difficult. Receiving it means I really receive it, that I understand it's given to me, and I'm supposed to do something with it that also comes from beyond myself, and it creates something beyond myself, but through my energies, but much greater than me, much more eternal than me, than my physical life. The receiving the Torah is the hardest part. That's why when we received it, that's called expelling the venom of the snake. Pasta zua mashalhanachash. Finally, we said, how do you get out of that room? You walk out of the room. How do you walk out of the room? You say, wait a second. Why do I have to hate everybody, be afraid of everybody, devalue everybody, feel threatened by everybody? Because I'm alone. But if I come out of that room and I say, wait, here's a whole world. And everybody's give, been given God's creative abilities. And I personally, just like a mother, does not take one cell and create a whole baby. All parts of her body and all systems and all organs and everything is recruited to build that offspring. We need a whole world. We need a lot of people with lots of different points of views and lots of different attitudes and lots of different talents. And they're not threats. My goal is not to be independent of everyone. My goal is to be interdependent with everybody, drawing from everyone's resources and putting my resources at their disposal. And nobody's a threat because if I'm confident and I know <coughs> That God gave me my talents, and that's the secret of Ezio Usher Sameach Bechelko. That I, I don't have to manage everybody else. I can try my best to be a good example and to explain to others everywhere I go that there's a world beyond the self. And that's the missing, that today is, is something that people don't hear enough and don't want to hear and need to hear more and more and more and more. There's a world beyond the self, a world of truth and a world of eternity. And if you Alienate yourself from it, you're all alone. And it's a very scary place to be. But if you're connected to God, who, who you are anyway connected to, and you recognize the joint effort and Hashem's investment in us and what, what's expected of us, as long as we become a good example, we appreciate, we learn Torah deeply, we look at mitzvahs deeply. I'll give one example now. We understand that everything we do makes sense in terms of bringing out our greatest abilities to represent something greater than ourselves. We stop being afraid of everyone. We stop devaluing everyone. There's, sinas finam doesn't operate in a world outside that room. Sinas finam works in that room when we're alone. And everybody is competition. Two things. Here's a tip, classic example, perhaps for chinuch, I suggest, maybe a good way to approach this subject. Modesty. 
Modesty is often seen as a set of annoying regulations that interfere with our either freedom of expression or our comfort and make us look different and are very, very, very um, restrictive, okay? But again, if we're in partnership with God, right, we're trying to do something bigger than ourselves, we can see modesty in a whole different light. Everybody has a body and a soul. We'll agree on that. Clearly, a person's body contributes to their personality and their also and their identity. If somebody is particularly tall and beautiful and graceful, yes, they're going to get a certain amount of attention and it's going to affect them. And on the other end of the spectrum, someone is disabled and or has physical real limitations, disabilities, yes, that will affect them. However, if you took all the tall, beautiful people, a hundred of them, women, who all were over five, nine, and all, and all, and you put them all in a room, and you took a picture of them, and you cut off their heads, okay? And they were all wearing the same dress. You couldn't find yourself. Because essentially, our bodies are basically the same. There is a little range this way, and a little range this way, but basically, it's all the same. Now, clearly our souls, okay, more than that, our bodies are not in our control. Try this experiment. Body, right now, reverse the aging process and take away the wrinkles that I've accumulated in the last 10 years. <coughs> Don't metabolize what I just ate. Grow me blonde hair. The body doesn't listen. How could I be something that doesn't even respond to me, doesn't care about what I say, that I have no control over it, basically? Here, and also it gets worse with age. You have a body that gets worse with surprise. It gets worse with age. It deteriorates. It's not in our control. It doesn't get more beautiful. You have a soul. The soul, you can, you, you develop your soul. You develop its facets, its character. You control it. It's as beautiful or not beautiful, God forbid, as we want it to be. It's totally in our control, okay? It's unique. Everybody knows. We could give a million examples, but everybody knows. If we want someone to love us, to cherish us, to devote themselves to us. We want them to devote themselves to us for who we really are, what's unique about us, not our bodies. That's way too dangerous. But how do you get someone to know you, to cherish you for your soul when your soul is invisible? That's the dilemma. It might be true that your soul is invisible, but the effects of your soul on you are not if there's one part of the body that a glimmer of the soul shines through, where would that be? Your face. Chachmat adam ta'ir panav. Panim, pnim. The eyes are the mirror of the soul, right? So how do you bring attention to your soul? That's the question. How do you get people to love you and cherish you for your soul? Very simple. You distract attention from the parts that are distracting. Modesty is not repressive and limiting. Modesty is revealing, bringing into focus the neshama, the selim of a person. I am part God, part man. I have values. I have a mission. I have perspective. God needs me or he won't be known in his own world. That's who we are. And the only way for a person to know us like that and relate to us like that is when we distract attention from what is distracting. When we see ourselves in partnership with God, that's the part of us we want people to actually see. Sneas is about revealing the higher aspects of a person. 
And that's as simple as that. There's nothing in the Torah that's designed to limit us. Because we, God is not limited. We could not be God-like if we were limited. God is unlimited. And so, our creative abilities, our capacity to do this job in this world is unlimited, and the playing field is level. We just have to know what's beyond ourselves, and we have to, what should Jewish education be about? Inculcating in kids this knowledge, and the desire to keep learning, keep understanding, keep going deeper, and keep finding new ways to put their services, their talents, at the service of something much bigger than themselves, but totally dependent on them. That's education. That's the way to be enthusiastic about life. Not to be depressed, but be so mad, but helpful. Not to see everybody as a threat. Not to be beset with all kinds of fears. It's not that complicated. It just needs a simple reading and an understanding of the purpose of the Torah is to help human beings achieve their mission as partners with God. And that's why you need a lot of different people with a lot of different personalities and a lot of different <coughs> ways of doing things. And you need direction, how best to organize ourselves. That's it. Any questions or comments? Yeah. Hey, I just want to comment on what you just said. Now, I teach 12th graders, and I don't teach. In the Kodesh, I teach history of art. And I will say, okay, till the age of 35, you have the faith that God gave you. And after that, you're in charge. And the kids say, oh, sure, cosmetic surgery is in your makeup. No. I think your character is going to shine through Shine through after 35. You can't get away with it. In other words, it's going to be right there on the face. But I don't know how, how really, truly I get through to them. It's it, it goes to what you were just saying, which is a perfect thing to tell them. But how, how much they internalize that really? Well, that's a good age. We, we mm -hmm. realize it. There's no question that we, our appreciation of that evolves with time. With time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, go to my Facebook page. What's your name? Joe Bronstein. Joe Bronstein. Oh, that's yours. Sorry.